0: Okay, without further ado, please welcome the star of the show, episode 22, live from my drum room with Simon Phillips. Here he comes. I think he'll have cappuccino in hand when uh, when the connection finally comes through here. Let's see, let's see, let's see. And... There he is <laughs> <laughs>
1: a little worried. there. Eh? <laughs> I was a little
0: worried. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, I thought, "Uh oh, we've lost, uh, we've lost internet or something." Not unusual in this area.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it seems good though, Simon. Every I I filled everybody in on what's going on, so you know, we'll we'll it, it's going to be great. Okay, got a lot of folks okay, watching. Cool, lovely. Yeah. <clears throat> um, our friend Ralph Angelilo from Montreal drum fest. Morning, everybody. Yeah. Sorry about that. All right. You're still with me, Simon, right? I am. I'm here. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Okay. Yeah. I was just saying our friend Ralph Angelilo from uh, Montreal drum fest is, uh, is with us and says, hello.
1: Great. Hi, Ralph. Bonjour. Bonjour, monsieur. Ça va?
0: <laughs> Bonjour. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of good folks watching. Uh, yes. Great. Kent Brief, a.k.a. Brent Keefe. You know Brent, I think, right? From,
1: yep. Yeah. From hey. the UK? Yep.
0: Oh, yeah. 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 Top chap. Yep, absolutely. Top top chap. A lot of good folks watching here. <laughs> um, so, Simon... Let's 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 chat about your long and prolific career. I made a couple little notes, so I didn't leave anything out to to sort of touch on. But um, you started playing. And this is this is, and it's not this. We're not going to get into all this stuff. You always talk about. We'll get into the better stuff than that. But uh, but for people that don't know your history, you started playing really really young. Four years old, maybe. Two and a half. <laughs> okay. And how old were you when you started playing in your dad's band?
1: Twelve.
0: Twelve. Okay. Playing the music of your dad's big band. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was. Uh, I was twelve years old and the youngest. Although the, the the next youngest guy was the alto and baritone player and he was 30 and on and on it went up to the 60s so it was um, an interesting experience a very interesting experience I mean I didn't know anything different so it's I look back at the experience now as an adult and I see children of you know 12 and 13 and 14 and it's kind of hard for me to relate. It's like wow, did that really really happen? But yeah, of mm-hmm. course it happened. Um, you know, four years on the road, with my dad's band. I mean, uh and um he was a tough taskmaster too. He was very strict. So, uh, I got one hell of a uh apprenticeship, let's put it like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I am sure you did. And you you've told me a little bit a little bit about that in the years that we've known each other that what that how that helped develop your, you know, like, probably so much of what you are today is based on that kind of work ethic that you learned really young, which is so key, you know, the preparation and, and
1: yeah, the, it's is the discipline to music, musical discipline, and also life discipline. Um, you know, my dad was, he was quite old, he was born in 1907 so um he was already uh well 60 when I was uh, when I joined the band plus he grew up in that era pre-war era
0: mm.
1: formed his own band his first band in 1925 and then of course he was in the military during the war so he was in the RAF um um very strict and very old fashioned quite Victorian in a way um so I got a lot of uh, a lot of disciplinary treatment um, in terms of you know being on time for gigs and and also hearing him talk about other musicians when they weren't quite on the same page as he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's uh, it, it's a it was almost it, it was kind of like a time machine. Even though this was nineteen sixty nine, it could have been nineteen forty nine for all I knew, because that's how he ran his band. Um, Just like like the big bands uh, in the States, you know? Uh, Artie Shaw, Woody Herman, Glenn Miller, you know? It was a very, very different way to the way we kind of conduct our business these days. Um, So, yeah, I I got a hell of a, a, um, uh, you know, Lesson, I guess, early lessons, life yeah. lessons.
0: <laughs> that's that's great. That's, yeah. Um, and, and that, so you played with him until you were like 16. And then you, that yeah. sort of just, that sort of, yeah.
1: Well, in that time, uh, so I started off playing just the gigs, which would mean, I'd have to leave school uh, earlier in the day, uh, walk home, which was over a mile, um, pack my drum kit up, uh, put my uh, dinner jacket on and you know suit and everything, bow tie. I used to tie a, a real bow tie, not a clip on. Um, <laughs> and uh, in the early days, we'd all travel by cars. So in his car was, he was driving and there was the trumpet player and the alto player and myself in the back seat. And on the front seat was my bass drum and floor tom. And in the trunk was the rest of the drum kit, a baritone, an alto, a trumpet, a clarinet, and a whole big uh, box of music stands <laughs> for the band and the pads, the, these little fiber um, boxes which had all the music in. And there's nine mm-hmm. people in the band. So... And we traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles you know and i used to get terribly car sick too so most of the time my head was hanging out the window <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah uh oh my god and uh you know we drive to hull or scum or leeds or manchester and uh stop at this place called the blue Boar, which is where everybody used to meet for lunch and refueling and stuff and. And then the gigs were four hour long gigs. By the time we got to the third set, I was, you know, I was falling asleep because I'd been up at school since, you know, seven in the morning, Yeah, you know, getting ready to go to school for 8.30 or 9, whatever it is. So uh, then we drive back, get home at about any time between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. And then go to sleep. And then if it were a weekday, I'd have to, they'd wake me up. My mom would wake me up. At lunchtime have a quick breakfast and then go to school for the afternoon oh, man. <laughs> it was quite a an existence you know um that was the so the first year was 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 gigging and getting experience of uh playing gigs and playing with a band playing in time and I could read music at that age so and, and of course I was learning the music as well um but then the recording sessions happened, mm. and that was a, a pure accident. So now I used to go to the recording sessions and sit behind the drummer and watch. So I was very familiar with the studio environment. Um, I knew how to behave in a studio from you know, five or six years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't start taking sweets out and undoing them because the rustling of the, <laughs> you know, the paper on the suite would make a noise. And it means you couldn't cough, you couldn't sneeze, you you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but then one day, and I believe it was a Saturday, it was a BBC broadcast, and it was in 1970. I do have the date somewhere. Um, and uh, something happened with the drummer, and he couldn't make the session. And my dad, this is in the morning, like maybe about 10 or 11, and the session is due to start at 2 o'clock at uh, BBC Maida Vow. Vale. Um, and um, uh, uh, he called a few drummers, and everybody was busy. And he said, well, you're you're on for the session today. Well, my drum kit was in bits because I was cleaning it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as you do when you're young you'd better put a lot back together <laughs> yeah and then uh, so I had to hastily put the drum kit back together you know pull all the heads on tune it and everything and then he gave me a whole bunch of music now the difference is that uh, the music we played for the concerts was although the, the the dances really was a, pretty much the same so I knew them but for the broadcasts he would do new arrangements and different songs and stuff so i'd never heard these before and uh i kind of had a quick look through and you know and then we of so course we packed up the car drove into uh bbc of and loaded in the drum kit set it all up and i was obviously incredibly nervous oh, uh and then it was time to to go you know and in those days Um, This was probably mono. So full track quarter inch tape machine. Uh, The drum kit had one ST uh, 4038 over the top 3048, I always get those mixed up. Um, And probably a D 25 on the kick drum. Um, No headphones. And I think for the broadcast, we had a 10 piece band, uh, three saxes, trumpet, trombone, bass banjo drums piano and clarinet um and then we we started and i was scuffling through these charts and we did uh 12 songs in three hours so there would be a rehearsal and then a tea break and then you start recording and it'd be pre-recorded and then broadcast uh on the radio about a week later Well, my dad could see that I was really struggling. So he rang my mom, who was at home, and said, bring the dance pass, which means he could then select a few songs that I knew and was comfortable with. So I would say half the broadcasts were were new arrangements, and then half, thankfully, (laughs) were songs I knew. That That was really tough, you know? But and, and, I was 13 years old. My first, okay, I was going to uh, say, and you were 13. Session. Yeah, wow. Yeah.
0: And, and and you'd been reading yeah. at that point? And from since... then on,
1: I, I did a work.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I was sent to Max Abrams, who was a very famous British teacher in London. Uh, pretty much everybody went to, Phil Collins, uh, Neil um, uh, Wilkinson. Uh, I think loads of people went to went to Max. And Max used to play with my dad back in way back, I think pre-war in the 30s, actually. Um, so that's one thing I could do because my dad was so emphatic. You have to learn how to read. And so I started at eight years old. And by the time I was 12, I was able to read, uh, well, drum music, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so key. Wow. <laughs> and then so, and 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 I was... And you kind of um answered half of my question about the recordings and that by the time if i'm correct by the time you've sort of finished your tenure with your dad at 16 that sort of you you sort of were already if not already immersed you were sort of into the london session scene at that point around that time or or nearabouts, right i mean um yeah not quite
1: not not quite um you know, when he he died very suddenly and uh, all of a sudden I was left with the decision to do you keep the band running? Uh, At the time, I was so fed up of playing Dixieland. I wanted to play rock and roll. I wanted to play modern jazz, you know. Uh, I wanted to join Yes and Stan Kenton at the same time, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I um, I decided. And also, frankly, without him, leading the band without his clarinet tone, because he had a beautiful tone, uh, very different from what most clarinets sound like. Um, to give an example, he sounded more like Artie Shaw than Benny Goodman. Um, mm. And, of course, he, he knew those guys. I mean, he used to hang with them before the war in, in New York in 37 and 38. Uh, I think he was quite a good friend of Artie Shaw's, actually. Wow. Um, but uh, without him, it wouldn't be the same. You know, I knew what, what clarinet players sounded like in London at that time. And it, you know, and, and so, and I just didn't want to do it anyway. So I said, no, uh, I think it should end there with him. Uh, it would never sound the same. Um, so that's, that was a, one of the biggest you know, first decisions I had to make at <laughs> 16 years old. You know, mm-hmm. um, so basically what I did was put myself out of a job. By the way, I was still going to school, but. <laughs> you know, of course yeah um uh and then i was uh uh jobless so my mom sent me off to work at a at a um electrical store which was great because i got to sell uh hi-fi systems to people which of course i was already tinkering about with with uh, tape machines and you know because my mom had them and so they would come in and try to buy like a, a vacuum cleaner or some Hoover bags. And I try and sell them a hi fi system. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure it you worked did. a
1: couple of times.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I, I, would, I would follow it up. I'll come and install it. And they'd look at me and go, really? <laughs> You know how to do that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I can't drive. I'll need someone to take me there. (laughs) I could drive, but I wasn't allowed to drive, you know, driving age in England, 17. So, uh, you know, a year to go. Um, And then my really the big break was when um, Jesus Christ Superstar was running in uh, London at the time, and they needed a new drama. And one of the keyboard players of the show used to play with my dad. And he was, in fact, I still speak to him. His name's Dave Cullen. And he was the guy that turned me on to Chick Corea, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He used to come and lend me loads of records. And uh, it's so cool. And he was the guy that, that, you know, recommended me for an audition and turned up at the audition and, uh, played and got the gig. And that's wow. what started the session career.
0: And, and you were maybe 17 at the time at that point or, or, or still 16.
1: I was still 16. So
0: still, still 16. Okay. Yeah. 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 Wow.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I mean, I just, I, I remember, yeah. you know, knowing that, 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 like at such a young age, you kind of and Dave Maddox. I had Dave Maddox on with me a couple of weeks ago, and he made mention of, of you know, he's older than you, you know, being in the, on the scene in London, and he said then when Simon came along, it just kind of like changed everything because you had this whole different sound and <clears throat> excuse me, an approach and, uh, you know, the way you play. So mm, wow, yeah. I- just <clears throat> And by the way I, I just I, I know we've got that funny delay but I want to tell you that Steve White is watching and says hello.
1: Oh fantastic. Hey Steve. <laughs> I hope from you're doing okay. Steve. Hope you're doing yeah. well.
0: Yeah, and I'll be getting Steve on here <laughs> yeah. in the future as well. Um, so and and oh, so great. in those yes. in those yeah. early years Simon I know like like some of the earlier sessions or earlier, um, you know, dates that you did, uh, like Judas priest? Or was that was that like a little bit later than that? You weren't I, I don't imagine you were 16. But um, what were some of the earlier? Uh, no, that
1: was a little bit later. That was, yeah, yeah, that was 77. And by that time, I was well established in the, in the London session scene. Um, I think it was uh, 74. 73, 74, 75, which was the early part of uh, turning up to sessions and, um, you know, again, gaining more experience. But a lot of the time, um, I would turn up to a session and cart my drums in, set them up. Now, some studios which i had been in before knew, you know, they so they, they they knew I was on the session, so and they w- had worked with me before. And so it was cool, you know, but there were still a lot of people who had no idea. Uh, I had been booked for the session. They knew my name, but they didn't realize I was, I was well, by then I would have been, you know, uh, let's say, well, 16 or 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very shy, too. Typical British, you know, kid at that that age. And I'd sit in the control room, and of course, I was way into the... The gear, the console, the tape machines, speakers, even just cables, and looking at tape boxes, and and uh, but I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't wouldn't you know wouldn't would make a, a noise, you know. And the room would start filling up with all these guys, and then somebody would say, "Has anybody seen this drummer, Simon Phillips? Is he around?" <laughs> and I would go, uh, 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 "That was me," <laughs> and maybe one musician had um knew me and but the others didn't and they all looked at me and kind of went okay <laughs> and looked at each other I went oh this is gonna be interesting you know but you know I'd say okay you got a you got a chart you know and I said no no this is uh and the guy would you know maybe play the song or something um uh, I, I mean I remember one session distinctly and I think this was 75 and it was a for a guy called Tony Ashton Mm. who was in a band called Ashton Gardner and Dyke and Kim Gardner, who owned the cat and the fiddle on Laurel Canyon way back. Mm. You must remember. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Which turned into that restaurant. Uh, What was the restaurant called? We used to go there. Um, Oh, Pache. Iota. No, no. Pache. Yes. Yes. Pache. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Great place. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Before that, it was, it was the original cat and fiddle. Yes. And that's where Mitch Mitchell used to hang out all the time. And uh, we used to go in there with various different, you know, states of people. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I I remember Jim Cregan was on the session, guitar player, the um, bass player from a band called Medicine Head, and a percussionist drummer called Tony Carr. And mm. uh, so... We started playing and we, we laid down one track. And in those days, we were, it was an air studio one. So we were all partitioned off with just movable screens. That's how mm-hmm. it used to be in those days. After we'd played the, the, the first song, Tony is next door playing percussion in, in, in the next booth, as it were. He comes and pokes his head around and looks at me and he says, I know you. <laughs> and he was a big guy He, he came from malta um it turns out that he'd seen me play with my dad because he was filling in for phil seaman for the phil seaman quartet or quintet yeah and phil had just died and tony was playing drums and i'll never forget he walked in the front door of the club with his Ludwig bass drum, with everything on it, cymbal, tom-tom, pedal. (laughs) And my drum kit was in the way. And we were the headliner. So uh, he said, "Mm." I said, well, you you can use this kit. And he looked at it and went, "Mm," and then turned around and walked out with the whole thing. It was hilarious. And that was him. And so he realized that he, I remember him sitting up at the bar, looking at me, scowling with a big, large scotch, you know, Kind of going, hmm. you know. So funny. he turned out; he ended up being a great mate, great friend, and we used to have lots of fun together. But um he, he used to sing louder than he played the drums.
0: Oh, that's funny! <laughs> <laughs> so when you, in those in those early so session days, some of the London, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry, I was going to say. So in those yeah. early session days, were you what what like type of kit, not even this, I know, maybe it was a Ludwig kit, but how, how big of a kit were you playing at that point? Had you yeah. had you got to the point that you are at today with the the configuration?
1: Yes. Uh, so uh, the band that I was in, in 1974, uh, end of 74, and taught with in 75 was when my kit started expanding. Mm-hmm. Um, it was double double kick drum, two racks, two floors, five cymbals. And by the time we'd finished um, touring the first half of the year, it was, um, you know, four tons across the top, three on, on the floor. Um, it was quite a large kit, but it was a Heyman kit. I couldn't afford, you know, uh, Ludwig then, mm. uh, but I had a small Ludwig kit for sessions. session. Um, Also, the other thing was, in those days, we couldn't get any other size in Ludwig or Rogers or Slingaland or Gretsch other than 22-inch bass drum, 13-inch tom, 16-inch floor, maybe a 12-inch tom. Mm. I had a 14-14 Ludwig floor tom order for a year, and it never came. Dallas Arbiter were the uh, importers. Um, So... When it came, it came time to come to doing sessions, yes, I used my little Ludwig kit, which was uh, 22, 12, 13, and 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had to get another one, same same setup, um, because I was starting to do you know more than one session a day, and I needed a kit in one studio and a kit in another studio. So we used to piggyback the studios. I had a guy uh eventually had a guy that would start taking them around uh, the studios and I would set them up and pack them up. Um, so I had two of these Ludwig Big Beat uh, drum kits. Mm-hmm. And then when I needed to, I could put the two together and make it a double kit. Ah.
0: Um,
1: I did a lot of sessions like that, 222s, 212s, 213s, 216s. Uh, tuning nightmare, but uh, but it worked. Yeah, and yeah. then in 1975, uh, there was a there was a shop called Pro Percussion, I think it was. No, Percussion Services, and they had a set of Ludwig mahogany cortex concert tongs. And my dream kit was the Ludwig Octoplus. Mm-hmm. Um, And one day I went and bought the whole set, so I had two white bass drums. Uh, two white Ludwig floor toms and then mahogany cortex, eight concert toms. And depending on the session, I would either use for like the more of the straight three hour sessions, I would use a small kit. But then the ones that started in the evening, which were more of the rock and roll sessions, which would go on till all night, you know, till 4, 4 a.m. or something, uh, I'd use the big kit. So it was a mixture, absolute mixture of uh, depending on on what the session was.
0: Yeah, interesting. And that and that became over time really your mainstay for pretty much everything now, right? I mean, that's that's. I mean, you use a maybe a slight variation of it with different yeah. with like Hiromi or something, but it's it's pretty much the setup.
1: It's pretty much. Yeah, well, you see, yeah. the concept, um, obviously, in those days, I was learning about, about sound and about recording. And I'd go to, let's say, for example, I'd go to uh, CBS Studios in Whitfield Street, and they had a Neve console, probably in 1868 or something. I think they had Studers, and they had Altet Lansing Speakers. And it was—I can't remember his name. It was a great engineer there, and he always made my kit sound amazing. And then I take the same kit to maybe Morgan Studio Two, and I wouldn't like the sound of the kit once I went into the control room. Mm. I went, oh. and and this is what—and I think that was a Cadac desk, Tannoy speakers, Lockwoods, um, and they had a mixture of Studers. No, I think they did have Studer. Yeah. Um, so I started figuring out that why in this studio with the same drum kit, same tuning, it sounds great. Mm. And then I moved to another studio and it doesn't sound great. And this was the start of a very long lesson to learn and to figure out how to get sound from the acoustic instrument on tape and coming out of those speakers. Um, and this is when I started tuning very differently to pretty much everybody else in London. Uh, my kit was loud. It was undamped. It was ringing like crazy. And some engineers loved it. And some engineers hated it. <laughs> and But I was... <laughs> I was a very quiet, but rather, very quietly bolshy, because I had a very serious determination how I wanted the kit to sound, and in that track too, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll remember one artist in Morgan Studio Four, his name was B.A. Robertson, and he came up to me one day after a session, he said, I love the way your drums sound. Don't change that. Don't make it sound like, you know, a lot of the other London Session guys. And uh, I said, wow, thank you. That's that's great. So I guess it was uh, I, I started learning about all the microphones. I just used to ask without, hopefully without being annoying, I used to ask the engineer or the tape op even because I started to get to know. A lot of the tape ops were not my age, but a little bit older. But you know, closer to my age. Yeah, they were just starting out. People like Flood, you know, who's now you know world famous um, uh, uh, producer Steve Lillywhite, who was tape hopping on uh, very early session, um, and all these guys who became very famous engineers. We were all kids back then. Yeah, wow. You know, Steve Nye up at uh, AIR. Um, oh, I mean, yeah, it was it was amazing. You know, so. Um, I would learn about all the microphones, the positioning of them, you know, um, and 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 just try to learn so much about how to make this work. And that's when the concept of the tuning and then dealing with adding more drums and the problems that you get with everything, you know, ringing, and then uh, being over compensating for it, you know, uh, tightening the snares up so they don't buzz and stuff like that, and really missing the point. And it's only years of, of doing this. Suddenly, it starts to fall into place, and then you can have a big kit, seven toms, three snares, two kicks, you know, and it all works sympathetically, you know. Uh, yeah. And that that is my concept. Uh, even if I'm only playing Phil Spector, boom, boom. Boom, boom, bah, boom. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It's the sound of that drum when it's surrounded by all these other drums that are working in a symbiotic way. Mm-hmm. And all the mics are, well, they're all open. And if the engineer's done his job, um, you know, he's got over whatever phase issues there are, because there's always phase issues. Um, but his gain, his gain structure, that's really what it's about, and volume of the actual drums themselves and the balance of the kit. That's the thing that I think people, younger players, don't don't really understand yet. The kit has to be like a piano. You could put one microphone, actually anywhere, it doesn't really matter, but put it over the top, and the kit should sound great. Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be one cymbal that's barking, you know, or a hi-hat you can't hear. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. That's, you can that's...
1: hear plenty of bass drum on that overhead mic. Yeah, you know? yeah.
0: That's fantastic advice. That that one, that's that's a huge nugget right there for for anybody to take away from this is that you're right. I mean the the you should be sending a signal to a microphone that's a balanced signal to begin with, rather than expect the microphone to or yeah. the or the, the the board to balance it for you. Yeah, and and I, I just want to just talk about a couple of quick yeah. things because. I've experienced that with you on a number of occasions when we've done clinics together and, um, you know, at, at PAS and all these different places where we've been. And, and the first drum clinic that I ever saw you do, which was at Wurlitzer in 1982. And, um, and I, a, f- a friend of mine that's watching was at that clinic. And, and I, w- I really wanted, I want to <laughs> get your thoughts on that because you have so many great thoughts about it. But I, but I remember, um, seeing you do the sound check upstairs in the room that we had up there, <clears throat> you had your drum tech Ravi with you. And I'd never, I, I had seen a few clinics at that point. Um, I'd never heard a drum kit sound the way you had your drum sounding. You, you, and Ravi spent the entire afternoon, basically right, taking them out of the boxes and putting them together. I mean, they were just shipped in from Tama that day and uh, and especially breaking in the bass drum yep. heads and the towel effect from, I remember like taking note of how you, how you got your bass drum sound and it was fascinating. It was unbelievable. And then the end, and you had D 12s in your bass drums. And I, I had, I had one on my Gretsch set. I bought one and I couldn't get it to sound anything like, like your bass drums sounded. I just remember thinking (laughs) like, that is the most amazing bass drum sound I've ever heard. I mean, it was just so uh you know pure and and acoustic it was like an it was the true sound of the acoustic drum amplified it wasn't you know it wasn't the sound that people were getting which was just the the thuddy clicky bass drum sound but um anyway i just i i just want to say that that i remember watching you work and and uh and and it was just so you you're so methodical when you do that it's 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 i, I can't even you know begin to express to people what it's like to see you in action when you do that when you you know and and you just you you're focused like single minded like this is what I've got to do and um it's amazing so yeah, yeah. bravo
1: it's one of those don't talk to me <laughs> don't talk to me i'm busy <laughs> yeah well i just looked it up october the 15th October the
0: 15th. Uh, okay. And
1: uh, I flew in. Yep. I flew in 1982. I flew in the day before and I was so nervous because this was my first drum clinic in the United States. Wow. And I had just done a, the, you uh, know, let me just have a look. On two days earlier, I had just done a Zildian, uh it wasn't called Zildjian Day then, but it was a Zildjian um, night at the place called The Venue in uh, Victoria, in London, with mm-hmm. Pete York. Oh, yeah. Nice. And I believe I had a band, too. And I think John Lord was playing uh, keyboards. Uh, I don't remember who the other players were, um, but it was great. It, it, it was wonderful. So we did this, uh, you know, Pete uh, started, in then I... Uh, you know, followed and uh, we, we had a great time. And then Ravi and I got on a plane, flew over to Boston, <clears throat> managed to get through US customs, which was frightening back then, you know, because yeah. I always was feared of not being allowed in and sent back, you know. Um, and then uh, of course, Lenny, the museum picked us up and it was so funny because Lenny could not get Ravi's name. <laughs> so we, we'd meet, you know, we've got all our gear with us and go, hey, Lenny, how you doing? Hey, it's you know, and so, "And this is Ravi. Hey, Rover, great to see you, you know. So, Rabi, Roly, Revi, every permutation of our API, <laughs> he could not get it. It was hilarious. <laughs> and this went on for the next two days. <laughs> oh, my God. So, you know... Um, Oh, it was great. And we, we checked into the Bostonian, and uh, and he took us out to dinner. and We went clubbing afterwards, and I I kept saying to Lenny, Lenny, listen, it's getting really late, because I was worried, because, you know, compared to me, he's he was old. I mean, he wasn't yeah. really that old now. Mm-hmm. But right, he was right. probably in his 60s, probably, you know. And I said, Lenny, you know, you don't have to stay up. You know, we'll, we'll find, say, hey, no, no problem, no problem. <laughs> it turns out he drops us off at the hotel, because we're just nagged, we're beat, you know. And then the next day, I asked him, I said, so so Lenny, did did you get home okay? And he said, yeah, I I stopped in my local jazz club till about 4 (laughs) 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 a.m. And I looked at Ravi, we looked at each other and went, wow, talk about stamina, you know. Um, But the next day was, you know, setting up for the clinic and, You know, trying doing the usual thing and putting all the mics up and stuff. And and then Lenny starts, he opens the clinic and he's yeah. just got a hi-hat and a pair of sticks. He's even standing up. And I'm watching from kind of behind the, the wall there and I'm going, oh, shit. Oh, no. Oh, I mean, he's doing all this amazing stuff, you know. Yeah. High yeah. High yeah. And I'm already going. I'm already oh, yeah. really nervous. Anyway, now I've got to follow that. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how that went. that's how that felt. And I, I mean, you know, I was. Uh, I just didn't know. I really didn't know what to do. I just went out and made a load of noise, and then uh, oh. stopped and picked up a microphone. And I said, "Um, uh, any any questions?" <laughs> Something like that.
0: No, I, I I remember being everybody in the room. We had <laughs> uh, the place was jam packed. You know, you you couldn't move in the room, and and I, I remember it well. And and you were so great. You know, I was I had only just discovered you. You know, not long before that, you're playing with Jeff Beck and Pete Townsend in 1982. And I admit, yep. I know you know I know you'd yes. already were well established, but I. I was a little late to the game. I mean, you know, like a, a year or, or two anyway, but um, but I just remember you came out and you I I you correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think like you ran out when you were introduced, whether it was Lenny or myself that introduced you, you came running out to the drum kit and just I think you were standing up and I have this vivid memory of you just going <laughs> like before you even sat down or something. Or I don't know, it could be it could be. I, but but and then you <laughs> sat down and played, and it was it was, I mean, and the thing about it, Simon, and I don't have to I don't have to tell you this because anybody who's seen you play will attest to this. But you know, it was it was musical. You played some incredibly technical and and brilliant things, but it was it was so musical. I just remember there was a point where you you would you were just playing your bass drums and you were playing paradiddles at it's just not even a, a super fast tempo. It was just a sort of a medium tempo, but these super clean, even, and I remember I, I, I'm like, he's playing paradiddles with his feet. I just never heard anything like that. And, and, uh and you demonstrated playing right-handed and left-handed on the snare drum. And it was just, you know, fabulous. It was, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, but I, I have to Thank tell you a couple you of quick, a couple of quick, no, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. No, no, go, no, no, go, go.
0: go. Well, I was going to tell you a couple of funny quick stories that are a couple of our mutual friends um, have, have told over the years, which you, one, I, I think you've probably heard the other. I don't know if I've ever told you, but I remember Peter Erskine, it might've been around that same time or years later during a clinic talking about, him playing with Weather Report, and you were playing with Jeff Beck, I think, on the same bill, maybe in Europe somewhere. And <clears throat> I
1: guess yeah, standing Jeff Beck and uh, Weather Report with uh, Pete, yeah,
0: yeah. And so when when you played Space Boogie, I guess Joe Zavinol Zavinol turned to Peter and said something like, "Why can't you do that?" or something like, or something to that effect. It was just like Peter, you know, <laughs> with, his, with his head down, like uh, I. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh that's funny yeah oh, i i remember that in fact i i had a chat with pete for um for the launch of his snare drum and he actually brought that up that that story that was that oh was that, really yeah. funny. yeah
0: I, I hope i told it right but but the the other the other funny thing that i i remember yeah. and I, I witnessed it oh sorry go ahead No, no no. I was okay. just going to say it, there was a the I don't know if you remember this this particular uh drum festival at uh, Columbus Pro Percussion Drum Days in 2005 in Columbus, Ohio and it was you and Steve Gadd Dave Descenzo was there um, I'm trying to think of any other drummers that were on the bill yeah. that it's like a weekend type. We had, had dinner the night before with Jim Rupp, who's the owner of Columbus Pro, at this nice, I think, Italian restaurant. Remember, we were sitting at a table, you, Steve, and me, and and then the next day was the festival. And and Steve and I had been on that Mission from gad bus tour, and that was like the last, the last stop on this. Do you right. remember that? So, and the way they had it set up was. I do remember. Yes, yeah, yes. you you went on before Steve. <clears throat> and so we're standing off mm-hmm. si- off stage side stage watching you and you know you're totally bringing it you're simon phillips and you and ralph angelilo was, was there he said yeah so you're you're totally bringing it and and you know gad he looks at me and he said with this like not happy look on his face he said to me whose idea was it for me to go on after simon Anyway, I said, I said, I think, I said, I said, I think it was Jim Rupp's idea. The guy, the guy that put this on, he said, "Do me a favor. Next time some, we do something like this, don't make me go on after Simon or something like that." It was, it was I said, "No, Steve, you're going to be great." Oh, yeah, it was very funny because it was just. I, I remember thinking, like, "Yeah, yeah I would not and want to, have to he go on." Wants. Yeah, he was he was great. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but... no, Steve was beautiful. I, I I remember, you know. I mean, listen, you know, Steve just has to sit down at the kit and it's beautiful, you know. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah, then it's... he picks up the sticks. I mean, and that, that's just incredible. <laughs> you know, it doesn't even have to play a note. It's just it's beautiful.
0: You know. Yeah, it's great. No, I know. And I know. You know I,
1: and... I'll tell you, that's an interesting thing. You know, when you do these these drum clinics, um, and uh, you know, drum day, LA, Zildjian day. I mean, I had to follow Tony Williams at uh, Zildjian day in nineteen eighty
0: five,
1: and actually, Tony and I ended up having a great night that night. We 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 just we got drunk together, and uh, we had a lovely time. Um, But it's always. I think to everyone, it's always a bit nerve-wracking because <clears throat> suddenly we're so used to being on our own. We're the only drummer of the band and we're there to to play music. But now we're put into this situation where it starts to be a bit of a competition. Mm-hmm. And it's very uncomfortable because music is not a competition. Music is not athletics. Drumming is not athletics. It's not a sport, you know? So... But at the in the, with the best will in the world, you want to go and see the other guys play. But sometimes, by the time you get on, you know at eight o'clock in the evening, you're all drummed out. Mm-hmm. It you have it's like it's almost like you have nothing to say. Um, so it, it, you have to be very careful. and sometimes it's uh, uh, as much as I would love to go and see everybody, Sometimes you just have to um, give yourself the space and stay at the hotel room, you know? Um, And you're always going to feel, because there's always going to be, you know, uh, people, you know, (laughs) who are just absolutely amazing players with amazing technique. um, But that's not the point. And I think that's always something uh, to, to remember as a clinician or as a performer. You just go and you do your thing you do yeah. what you do best yeah. and you've got to give yourself the space not to hurry yourself and not to keep winding yourself up and thinking, Oh, you know, am I boring everybody? Cause they've just had, you know, it's like, you know, we're following anybody, you know, following Dennis, you know mm. I mean? He's, a, he's got this blistering technique and a beautiful pocket. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's mm. so it's, it's always a difficult one to come to terms with. Um, So you've got to try to just be very, give yourself that space. Uh, Sometimes best to not really even be there and just turn up uh, as though you're the only person, because people are there to see you as well, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, always think of the music first. It's just a drum kit on your own, but think of it as as creating music. You know, you don't have to play blistering fast speeds all the time, you know? and the best example of that is Steve. Steve sits down and picks a beautiful tempo and just lovely thing. You know, he's confident and comfortable doing that. He ain't in any rush at all. And yeah. that's what people want to see. Um, and, and I think that's the thing to to remember. You know, it, it's a tough one. It is no matter what anybody says and how cool we appear. It's like, in the back of your mind, you're going, "Oh shit, I'm following so and so," you, you know, and yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. It's uh it's a, it's a tricky one.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's great, <laughs> Joe. Peter just commented and said, "That's exactly what Calvin all said." <laughs> I'm so glad <laughs> he's watching. <laughs> <laughs> I always oh, love that story, lovely. Peter. Good
1: morning, Pete. Oh, afternoon. I, Hi, Pete. <laughs> hey,
0: Simon. We have a question from Anthony Cuchina. Cucina. Kuchina. Anthony. I'm sorry if I ever yeah. if I mispronounce your name. Uh, is it true, Simon, that you have placed a can of paint filled with sand in your bass drum to get your sound
1: to record with? Yes.
0: It's okay. Yes. I would have thought that was one of those. Yeah. You know.
1: So. Um, let me, let me explain a little bit about that. So when it comes to playing drums, when it comes to engineering and producing, I've stolen from everybody. <laughs> so um, because I think that's the best way to, to learn. Um, the, uh, the paint can concept uh, Eddie Kramer, the famous engineer, he recorded pretty much all of Jimi Hendrix's records back in the mm-hmm. uh, late 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, we were doing a session together with a band called Lost Lobotomies with Steve Lukather. Uh, well, it wasn't quite lobotomies, actually. Was Steve Lukather, Jeff Babco, and Jimmy Johnson. And it was a session for sure microphones. They had just introduced the KSM-44 microphone which is mm-hmm. a double capacitor uh, mic, Alexa mic. And Eddie was on board with that. And this was like a demonstration recording using as many of those mics as, as we could, apart from when it, it was uh, not uh, a smart thing to you to do to use that mic. So we, um, Eddie said when he called me to talk about the drum kit and find out how many mics he needs, how many channels, all that kind of stuff. He said, there's only one thing I'd like to do, if you don't mind. I'd like to place a paint can in each of your bass drums. And my reply was, what color? (laughs) And he said, if I had $100 every time I was asked that, I wouldn't be doing this anymore. And I said, Eddie, I've had over the course of all this time, I've had pretty much everything in my bass drum except for water and fish, you know? So... (laughs) Um, I said, absolutely. You know, <clears throat> I'm there to learn off these guys. When I work with an engineer who, you know, I've heard of, and uh, even if I haven't, I'm always checking them out. And uh, mm-hmm. so I take the front heads off, puts a little towel in, puts a paint can in, a one gallon paint can, which, by the way, weighs 13 pounds. Mm-hmm. And then he puts a, um, a little uh, SM. 91 on the top, a piece of foam, I put the front head back on, and then he puts a a beta 52 on the front. Now I immediately can feel when I hit the kick drum, I can feel a resistance. And I can feel a solidness. And then in the phones, I can hear him getting levels and sounds you can always hear, especially if it's an older Neve console, which have steps, you can hear the in the, in the headphones as they're wow, tweaking our yeah. frequency and then boosting and cutting. Um, and then, so we laid some down and said, come and have a listen. So I went into the control room and he played it. And wow, I heard this beautiful thud, lovely solid thud, but it was still my kick drum sound. And I soloed the kick drum. Oh, well, I asked him to do it. Cause you don't, you know, you always ask the engineer to do it. Um, Just to listen, I said, uh, I said, is that flat? He said, "Yep, no EQ at all. I said, wow, that is just the signal coming in. From that moment on, I endorsed that. I said, right, I'm going to do that. Now the only change I made was carrying two gallons of paint around studios in those little paint cans was not a very smart thing to do because they do tend to split those cans. Mm -hmm. So, um, i experimented by going to uh osh or something grabbing empty cans and then i went to a fish store like a like a you know fish aquarium type store and i got some of that lovely great gray sand
0: yeah yeah
1: filled a can with sand got some scales weighed the paint and then weighed the sand exactly the same 13 pounds so much safer yeah. to have bits of sand in your bass drum than bits of black paint, you know? And, yeah. uh, and I've done that now for for many years. It's a, It's just a way of making, it's a very large instrument. It's producing huge amounts of low end and a lot of slap at the top. It needs its own, what I call like acoustic compressor to help it be more microphone friendly. I, I use this term microphone friendly, which mm-hmm. is when, um, you know, a lot of, you've got a Gretsch there, you've got a Rogers. These drum kits, uh, compared to modern day drum kits, I mean, the shells are not that great, really. Uh, the wood is a mixture of woods, usually quite soft. Some of the Ludwigs, uh, the inside was, what, what was the wood they used? Uh, Oh god, I can't remember. But it wasn't as you know beautifully scientifically made with hardwood like all the modern drums are. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the fact that what it helps is these drums are quieter; they're not as loud as modern drums. A microphone likes that. It's a very microphone-friendly instrument, and it's the same with acoustic guitars, anything acoustic actually. You know, a Martin acoustic might not be a very loud guitar and probably you wouldn't want to use it live, but put a microphone in front of it, you know, eight inches away and it's the sweetest sound you're ever going to get. That's what I call microphone friendly. Mm -hmm. You know, you get a tenor player that's got a beautiful reed and the mouthpiece and the horn is lovely and and a warm sound. And you put up a, a, well, hopefully a, a, a ribbon or something in front of it, not on the bow. And it has this very recordable sound. You literally put the fader up and you have a sound, you know? Same with singers. There are some singers that are microphone friendly. They just sound great in front of a microphone. Yeah. Yeah. And it's this is the thing to help the bass drum. It's a big thing to record, especially at 24. So give it a little help. Yeah. You're kind of... Yeah. Um, what you're doing, you're taking the, the, the spectrum low frequency, high frequency, and you're doing this a little bit because you put a bunch of mass into that drum, which is helping soak up those awkward low frequencies and even a bit of that slap as well, you know? So it gives the microphone just a, a head start. And and that's with my kicks and the way I have the front heads on and stuff. It yeah. makes them easier to record, frankly.
0: And I was going to ask you that. So you, you kept the closed head s- same... Same setup, but with the with the paint cans inside there. Very interesting.
1: Um. Yeah. Now, nine times out of ten, I have a hole in the front head.
0: You do. Nowadays. Okay.
1: Yeah. But, yes. But if I'm, uh, yeah, for most of the time. But if I'm doing some heavy metal, like if I'm doing a Michael Schenker record, then I'll put a full head on. I love the D. The B fifty two inside, and then I'll put a U forty seven on the front, and that makes it a lot more slappy and metally and thunderous, you know. Yeah, talk hey, about. Sometimes I'll take the damping out and just let it boom.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk about a great bass yeah. drum sound, and that kind yeah. of segues. I was going to ask you to talk a little about a little bit about working with Pete Townsend. And, and I remember the bass drum sound hearing face-to-face in 1985 on a lousy uh, stereo system that I had in my old van at the time. The bass drum sound was unbelievable on that yeah. recording. And, and maybe you could talk about maybe just working with Pete and how that even led to working with The Who. Um,
1: okay, well, that, those particular sessions uh was quite interesting because I turned up a week too early. And wow. Pete wasn't ready yet with his music. He was going to work with Dave Gilmore, who I was never introduced to and didn't recognize. So for a whole day I had no idea I had been playing with Dave Gilmore. <laughs> uh, it's hilarious, that that whole story. So Give Blood was that that first day. Now the producer, Chris Thomas, He got it into his head. He wanted to record the drums all separately. So he wanted me to do one track, uh, one pass, which was just kick and snare, and then another pass, which was hi-hat, and then another pass with some toms and cymbals. Now, that's really not much fun to play. Um, But on the other hand, a track like... uh, 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 face-to-face, it was perfect. So one of the reasons that sounds so cool is because you've got a big room, you've got maybe four ambience mics, two overhead mics, plus your close mics, yet in the room, all you're hearing is boom cap, boom cap, boom cap, boom cap, consistently. There's no yeah. cymbals, there's no hi-hat splashing around, Well, you know, from an engineering perspective, Mm. that's it's lovely to have that, you know, Mm, mm -hmm. Um, and that's why Bill Price could really, you know, squeeze the juice out of those those sounds and get that kick drum to really, you know, the room and everything.
0: But I can tell
1: you, it was very hard to play that high on its own for that length of time. You know,
0: yeah, it was like a
1: dance groove, really. It was, yeah, that, that was a, that was a hell of a track to do. I had to go and do it all separately and, oh yeah, it's tough because once you start taking away a limb, it's, it's like you've lost your balance on the bicycle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you've taken away the, uh, safety wheels or whatever, you know, (laughs) um, when we, when we play with all limbs, you're, you don't realize how much you're relying on each part, each, each leg and each hand to make the whole thing work. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And even balancing on the, on the throne, it's, it's, you know, the, the way it works when you only have to play half of the, the kit, it's so weird. And yeah. it just loses this uh, cohesiveness and in a way, groove too, because that's where groove comes from. Yeah. You know, it's a, there's the sum of all the parts working, you know, and they don't have to all be perfect in terms of time. They have to work with each other. You know, that's, right. that's what makes it work. So that was a tough, very tough track to do. Now, when we did Give Blood, he wanted me to do the same on that track too. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I misunderstood. We, we did one one pass with me playing everything and then he said, "Hey, can you just go and play kick and snare?" Okay. So I played just kick and snare, but I was, you know, doing all this other stuff, you know. And I we went to have a listen and Chris said, "What the fuck were you doing? What was that?" And Pete's in the back of the room and he's going, oh yes oh this is going to be great they're going to have an argument fantastic because he loves that you know and I go what do you mean you you told me to hit to play kick and snare drum and I played kick and snare drum he said yeah but you threw in all that other shit I don't want that I just want that I said Chris I can't play a track like that playing just that it doesn't work he said oh play what the fuck you want you know (laughs) It, it was really funny and Pete was like shall we go and do another tape then <laughs> and dave was like yeah oh, it was hilarious and i went out and i was actually pretty pissed off at this time so the track you hear is actually a track of a pissed off drama playing because i was wow. going how the, how the hell can you expect me to play a track like give blood with just half the limbs going you know yeah it yeah. was just horrible and um but it turned out the way it did, and uh, uh, it it's, was great. You know, it was, it was a really fun track. It was lovely.
0: Monumental. That <laughs> is a monumental track. It really is. That's just, yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. I was going to say. I mean, to, to the intensity that that you could have never gotten that, or the feel, just playing the kick and snare, and then playing the other bits later. I, I don't imagine. Um, but no, it's
1: right, and, yeah, no, it's tough. It's, it's, it's very hard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My my first um the the first Pete Townsend uh, ex- records that I a record that I heard you do was um, Empty Glass, I guess, which was a few years before that. Yeah. With Let My Love Open the Door. That was
1: 1979.
0: That was 1979. Oh wowie. I thought it was maybe yeah. 80 or 81. We had wow. Just,
1: yeah, no, we we had just finished the Jeff Beck Stanley. Clark European tour, which mm-hmm. is where Pete was playing with Weather Report. We all met in uh, we met in uh, Copenhagen in Denmark at the Plaza Hotel, and then we were playing that gig down in Spain somewhere. I think it was Barcelona, um, and that's where that story came from with with, yeah. with Pete. Um, and literally had just come back from that tour, and I got the call to to uh, uh, work with Pete. went to Wessex studios and yeah, you know, the first time I met him, we started playing, uh, the first song we played, I think was going to get you. Mm -hmm. And these songs, Pete's songs, they literally play themselves. We, we did two takes, three takes. It was done. They, his songs are just so good. All you have to do is just play the song, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's lovely when you're lucky enough to work with an artist or a great songwriter and you turn up and the songs just play themselves. It's a, it's the mark of a great songwriter and, and songs that are just very playable, you know?
0: And, and he, and I'm guessing he gave you kind of free reign to come up with your own parts and, 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 you know, like he hired you knowing, what, what you were going to bring. So basically, and the songs are written to give you, you know, lots of free reign to play some really beautiful, tasty parts too. And that's, yeah. that was his now, yeah, now Pete design. Pete makes
1: the most amazing demos. Yeah. He, he uh, his, his demos, uh, um, uh, sorry, I'm, I've got Dean with, with builders here. I right. I'm and I know you yeah. Right. Um, no, that's fine. It's just, uh, you know, um, 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 um. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, so he makes great demos <clears throat> so much so that you're in the control room and he's playing you the song and you're going, well, Pete, Sounds like you've already got this song. It sounds great. What, what 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 more do you need to do to it? Beautifully recorded. He's a great engineer on his own. He's, he's, and he's just going ah, oh, you know, that's just my rendition of it. Um, he wants people to play it. Yeah. Um, but he's he's funny. He uh, I've heard him. You know, with Chris Thomas, uh, he turned around and say, "Well, you know, uh, you're the producer." you produce. I've done my bit. I've written the song. Now I'm one of the musicians, so produce me, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so we listen to the song, maybe make a few notes, and actually back then, um, I don't remember writing down, I used to be able to just, just uh, listen to it and, and play it. I never wrote charts, not, not in those days. <clears throat> I guess I was at that age where I could, you know, do that, you know, listen to something and assimilate it, and then we'd sit down, we'd just start playing the song, Mm. And two wow. or three takes later it was done and uh, on onto the next track and uh yeah it, it was uh absolute what a uh absolute joy, absolute joy and one of the things I miss one one of the people I do miss playing with and making records with is Pete because his songs are just so so cool, they're so great,
0: yeah, great songs <clears throat> and and it was a probably a natural you know, given that you were working with him in the in the sort of mid eighties. When the when the who went out in eighty nine it was kind of a natural progression or logical choice for you to get the call for that gig and that must have been a great <clears throat> experience.
1: I think so I mean yeah it was uh yeah I mean you know but the who and Pete is uh, that they're, they're not very they don't sit sit well together for whatever reason um you know pete just feels um <clears throat> well he does change he, he 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 changes the way he he is um but i think when it came to doing that that tour that 25th anniversary tour he said well i want to put the band together and mm-hmm. basically we did use the deep end band that's really what it was and roger and john said okay fine let's do it you know mm-hmm. um I was actually working with Pete at the time in a production uh, an engineering capacity on a, a record called The Iron Man. And uh, so I was going to his studio every day for, for a, a month or so, um, programming uh, a synclavier and um, uh, doing tracks and putting together tunes and stuff, you know. Um, and that's when he actually asked me, and that was in, uh, a little bit earlier, a couple of years earlier.
0: I see, okay.
1: And um, so that was kind of the precursor to it. And then come 1989, all of a sudden, the 25th anniversary tour was was happening. Yeah,
0: huge tour. And and you had worked with Roger too, right? Sort of in that, throughout the sort of period of your... No. You hadn't, okay. I didn't know if there there was a a connection.
1: I, I worked with Roger much later. I yeah, okay. in, in 1993, we did a a, a, a thing together. It was um, a concert which was called uh, Roger Daltrey Sings Pete Townsend or Sings the Songs of Pete Town- Townsend. And that was something we did at the Car- Carnegie Hall with mm. the Juilliard uh, School of Music Orchestra, Michael Kamen, who was who was conducting. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And we had all these different guests, you know, Eddie Vedder, uh, uh, Oh, oh, a bunch of bands. Uh, Sinead O'Connor, The Chieftains, Dave Sanborn, um, um, oh, uh, Four Non Blondes, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Linda, Linda Perry. Yeah. Um, um, oh, God. So the, the, it's really hard to remember. There's lots of different. Oh, Lou Reed, I think, was there. Oh, wow. Was that, yeah. was that something different? No, no, no. Lou was there yeah it was it was really cool actually it was it was very cool um so that that was that was the the time i worked with roger on on his project yeah i see
0: okay and by then and and, yeah 94 94, and and just to just to jump ahead because i know you've you've got some limitations to your time and i and thank you so much for doing this and and i I do want to just quickly say peter made me think of this and i i meant to say it at the time um three weeks from today march 20th peter will be with me here so um so everybody watching and we have a lot of people watching simon not surprisingly many many people watching um so yeah so please tune in on march 20th for peter erskine who will be my very special guest? Um, but so, and, and you moved to Los Angeles in '92. Uh,
1: yeah, 92. end of '92.
0: End of '92, and
1: yeah,
0: and I know we're jumping around a lot here. Um, had you already been offered the Toto gig at that point? Was that what I? And I should know this because yeah. we've been friends for a long time, but I couldn't remember if that was what. <laughs> precipitated the, the the move or no? <clears throat> Not yet. Okay. So what
1: happened was uh, I was living a a life of um, you know I, I was living in the countryside about an hour and a half from London. Um, I had a residential studio at the time, um, and I was doing quite a bit of production and um not so much playing i mean a bit a bit of playing but i wasn't really playing as much as i really wanted to and the way of producing records and dealing with record companies was becoming in the in the early 90s it was just becoming i don't know um and um it, you know something i really enjoy doing is producing artists and and engineering and you know putting the whole thing together and, and, and stuff. Um, but, you know, you, you do a production and then you do send it into the record company and then you get a call, you know, can we get the multi-tracks? We, we'd like to actually get someone else to remix it. It was, it was the time when uh, it was very fashionable to get different mixers to mix different songs on an album. It was just a changing record business, basically. And then I would ask for the – I'd like to hear the mix. I'm very curious what what somebody else would do. But then the term mix changed its meaning. It wasn't literally putting the tape, the of tape on the tape machine, hitting rewind, getting a track sheet, marking out all the instruments – and then hitting play and starting to put faders up. No, it, was, it wasn't it was to do that. It was actually re-recording stuff, changing stuff, changing the chords, changing, you know? And, yeah. you know, I put a whole load of backing vocals on this uh, particular production, and I used to have, I only I had one 24-track machine and one two-track machine. So I used to do a thing where, where you you use a separate piece of multi-track, with a mix submix on it you do all your vocals then you mix them down to half inch and then you fly them in it's the early way of doing before we used akai samplers mm-hmm. um and i used to have so much fun with that you know you start the multi-track you've lined up the the half inch and then you hit the half inch punch in punch out and if you did your job right it's perfectly in time it's lovely and that's how we used to fly vocals in for all the the choruses <clears throat> So I got the mix back, and whoever had done this obviously didn't have a very good understanding of harmony because there were wrong chords all over the place. I think he'd redone the backing vocals with, with wrong notes in it. And I'm going, oh, no, wow. And I suddenly realized, you know, who are these people doing this stuff? But they're the new, you know, hip guys who were making records, I guess. So I was becoming a bit disillusioned with that. And I needed to play. I needed to have a a new challenge. And I'd always wanted to live and move to the States since I was really young. Because all my, you know, all my idols were there. You know, all my favorite musicians, all the people I wanted to play with. And um, I said, you know what, time has come. I'm, I'm done here in England. I'm going to move to, uh, to the States, and I think it has to be Los Angeles. So I started that process in 90 or 91, and it was quite difficult, mainly because most people that do the, that journey are either in a band, so they're signed to a record company, or they're with a publishing company. And it's the company that they're assigned to, whether it be Virgin or Atlantic or whatever, they're the people that deal with the work permits
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and then later on the green card. <clears throat> because you own, you have to have an agreement with one company. I'm a sole proprietor. You know, I, I was a freelance musician. I need to be able to work with different companies. I want, I want to do sessions for for you know, uh, for a Virgin or EMI or who, who, whoever it is, you know, um, so it was a bit of a tough one from a legal standpoint. I had to get you know an immigration lawyer onto it, and then a music business lawyer in New York <clears throat> to try to figure out how to do this. Well, that's why it took a long time. And at some point in 1992, my H one, which was the visa, came through. Yeah, and I had formed a corporation. And I had a three-year visa. And I thought, well, in three years, I should be able to get something going, you know? And then it was just a question of, when do I leave? Well, around October time is when the weather gets really bad in England. I said, I think I'm (laughs) going to leave around October. I had a couple of albums to do. I had a big country album to do. Uh, I had a solo album, which I was mixing, um, and a bunch of uh, other you know, sessions and bookings and live gigs. I was also actually playing with Jack Bruce at the time. We were doing some jazz festivals in Europe, Japan, yeah, which was a a lovely uh, reunion because we were together in 1977. Um, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, in well, July was it? I I, I, I can't remember. It must have been around July when we all heard the the terrible news, you know, that, that Jeff had uh, yeah. passed away. In, August, um, yeah. And then a week later, was it? Oh, yeah, wow. very beginning of August. And then yeah. a week later, right, a week later, I get a call <clears throat> the day before I'm going to go to London to record uh, the Buffalo Skinners with Big Country. I get a call from Steve, Steve Lukather. And I, I knew Steve not well, but but I knew him. I, I just thought he he wanted a call to to have a chat, you know. <clears throat> As it turned out, it was a little bit more of a chat. Uh, he told me the situation, and he asked me if I'd if I'd uh, you know play in the band for the tour. And I, I, I mean, I was stunned. I, I uh, really stunned. I mean, I you know <clears throat> never well, I, I, one would never you know. Because Jeff yeah. and well De- Jeff Jeff and David Page formed the band to start with, you know, it's his band. Um, mm. <clears throat> so once we'd sorted all that out, that's when I left England. I left a little bit earlier than I had planned to, and um, <laughs> that morning <laughs> I overslept. I missed the alarm to get the car, the Virgin car, to Heathrow. And it was a beautiful summer morning in England. And I remember waking up, the tweeting of birds. And, ah, oh, lovely. <laughs> but I knew something was wrong. Now, you know the beginning of Four Weddings and a Funeral?
0: Yes, yeah,
1: yeah. When uh, Hugh, Hugh Grant wakes up and what's the first thing he says? Fuck! Oh. <laughs> yeah. I look at the clock and I go, Oh, shit. <laughs> I jump out of bed. I look out, pull the window up, and there's the car waiting for me. I said, I'll be right down. And that was that was my goodbye of, of my life in England and the house and the studio and, uh, you know, uh, my ex-wife. And it was, I, I mean, you know, <laughs> typical. So I just grabbed <laughs> my suitcase, two suitcases, and a box of microphones, and that was it. I never went back
0: wow yeah and then i mean and yeah. and that was almost 30 years ago incredibly um yeah i yeah, i remember yeah, yeah I remember. seeing you at that nam show just after that just the the winter nam of 1993 um and you had just moved there and and that was the night of the well during that show was the was the seance the famous seance and our good friend Joe Hibbs's room, which we won't talk about tonight, today, but yeah, Marco, Marco, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, oh, but that uh,
1: was that the night we went to see Tony Williams play?
0: Yeah, yeah, we did. We, yeah, that was. I mean, that was a funny. Yeah. We, yeah, I, I'll tell this story because I, I can remember it. It was so funny. We, we were we'd actually Zildjian had had a little party earlier in the night that same night. And it was like our 393, it would have been 370th anniversary. We had a little cocktail reception at the Hilton and it ended at like 10 o'clock or something. So we went across to see Tony playing at something that Gretch was doing and it was you and me and Colin, I think Jonathan mover and I don't know if Marco yeah. was with us, or, you know, maybe Steve Turpak. Some of us, you know, went over to see Tony play. And uh,
1: oh, yes. yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And I remember we, we were walking. We were walking. We got to see a bit of Tony play. And we're walking backstage to, to say hello to Tony afterward. And someone stopped you from the crowd. Someone grabbed you and said, Simon, hey. And, and you guys had met somewhere along the way. <clears throat> I hope you don't mind me telling this story. But, um, he said, he said, Oh, I, I heard you were living in LA. I, Oh, can I get your number? And you said, I, I just got here and I don't even have a phone yet, but, uh, you can reach me through Tom and drums, you know, Joe Hibbs, Tom and drums, which, which made perfect sense. So we go back to say hello to Tony. We're chatting with Tony for a bit. And Tony says, Hey, Simon, um, give me your number, will you? And you said, sure, Tony, it's, uh. It's eight one eight, whatever it
1: was. Eight one eight. Well, of course, you, know,
0: you can't be giving uh, your number yeah. to to strangers in a yeah. in a you know at a gig. But no. it was a a funny moment. But. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Man.
1: I have a, a a little a little story about Tony. And the last time I saw him in uh, would have been 97. And I think you might have been there. Were, were you and I, or was it Joe? We were going into lunch at the at the uh, Marriott. Yeah. And you remember how there was always a line, there was always a queue for lunch. Yeah. Was it you? Were you there? I think I, think so. I was. I, I and think so. Tony yeah. was just I think you were there. And and Tony was just coming out of having lunch and he saw me. And then he started talking in an English Cockney accent. Yes. And he went, hello, Simon. How you doing? And everybody was looking around going, well, that looks like Tony Williams, but it doesn't sound like him. It was hilarious. Absolutely (laughs) hilarious. Yes, yes. I do remember that. You know, he didn't miss a beat. He just went straight to it. Yeah. And it was just so lovely. And, uh, you know sadly there was a loss on this one.
0: i know but, uh, me too i that know, I know. Wow. that was such a shock <clears throat> gosh i know i know um well you know simon we're nearing we're at 90 minutes and and i'm i think what we're going to have to do is we'll yeah. we'll wrap it up in a minute and i'm going to get you to commit to doing another one of yeah. these um in the future if we could because i there's so Absolutely. much we didn't yes, talk about yes. yeah i I, w- I know people would love that too sure um and and selfishly well, thank
1: you uh, everybody sorry uh, no, thank I, you to everybody that was tuning in and listening so
0: it's been great thank you for doing this simon and we have a lot of people <laughs> watching and and uh, I, I know i apologize that we're you know we're sort of going over each other due to the connection, but we'll, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. And it's great. We have lots of folks watching, but I was going to say selfishly, when we do part two, I I want to really pick your brain about that time with the who, because um, that was some of the most amazing, um, playing, you know, that you, you know, sort of shoes you had to sort of walk into, so to speak and Toto as well.